I'm back. <laughs> Good to see you again. Good to see everybody here on this Easter Sunday. Our scripture lesson for this Easter Sunday is from the Gospel according to Mark. This is his account of the resurrection of the Son of God. Would you stand for the scripture lesson today? It's Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. O risen Jesus, thank you for the gift of your word that we are not left to ourselves to try to figure out who you are, but you have revealed yourself in Christ and now in the, in the holy pages of Scripture. And you have given us, even more than this, your Holy Spirit to help us understand. So Holy Spirit, come now and do what only you can do and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. I pray we would see the risen Jesus as more beautiful and more believable today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. To be seated, please. All right, I'm going to let you guys in on a little uh, insider pastor knowledge. Are you ready for this? I'm not supposed to be telling you this, okay? So, there's this unwritten rule amongst pastors, if you will, kind of a, an unspoken command, which is this. Thou shalt not preach Mark on Easter. <laughs> it's the rule. No one preaches Mark 16 on Easter. Think about it. Give me Matthew, right? Matthew's account of the resurrection, which concludes with this magnificent great commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. That's impressive. Or give me Luke. These amazing encounters with the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Where he sits with them and he, and he shows them through how all the scriptures were pointing to him, Jesus. That's incredible. Or give me John. John's gospel has all these deeply personal encounters with people who see the risen Jesus. How he comes and he meets Mary Magdalene in her weeping. And then, and then he meets Thomas in his doubting. And then he meets Peter in his shame. That's my favorite, John. But of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, Mark is a little meh. If we're honest. It's quite ordinary by comparison. And that's why no one preaches Mark on Easter. It's too ordinary. It's too lackluster. It's, it's anticlimactic. I mean, think about it. We've been in Mark for months now. And everything, if you've been with us, especially the last couple of weeks, has been building to this moment. 
Jesus has, pre- has predicted three times that he will die and he will rise again. Like the drum roll has been, has been getting louder and louder and louder. And Mark gives us this detailed account of the awful death of Jesus. And now it's time for the glorious resurrection. And what do we get? <laughs> Eight verses where no one actually sees the risen Jesus. And it concludes like this, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. There was an angel. That's pretty cool, right? That's extraordinary. But the angel tells the women to go tell people, and they promptly tell no one. It ends with fear and with flight. Happy Easter, everyone. It's It's anticlimactic, and frankly, friends, it's a little disappointing. No one preaches Mark on Easter. But we're going to. Not just because we've been in Mark since Advent, because, but because it might be just what we need today. Here's what I mean. Maybe Easter feels a little ordinary to you today. Maybe as a child you loved Easter. You remember this if you grew up in the church? You got dressed up in your finest pastels. Who decided pastels was the color of Easter? I don't know. But you had to wear them, and then you got to hunt for Easter eggs stuffed with candy, which you put in this little basket filled with the, the fake plastic green grass. You know what I'm talking about? They make that stuff anymore. It's probably hazardous. Like, maybe, maybe those are just some of your best memories. They were filled with joy, with hope that perhaps Christ really is alive, and if so, he's making all the sad things come untrue. But maybe this year... The second one in a row, by the way, that is not normal due to a global pandemic. Maybe you're just not feeling it. Maybe Christ the Lord is risen today didn't quite hit like it used to. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I know I should be happy, but I I can't quite muster it up. And it feels inauthentic to fake it. Maybe this Easter feels ordinary for you, anticlimactic. Or maybe fear is what you're feeling this Sunday. Maybe you're afraid the world isn't going to get any better. Maybe you're afraid that you're you're not going to get any better. Maybe you're afraid that your faith is hanging by a thread. You're afraid for your marriage or your children or for your future. Then brothers and sisters... Is it any encouragement to you today that the dominant mood of the first Easter, according to the Gospel of Mark, was fear? They were afraid. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark is for those who are a little suspicious of the happy ending, when it's tied up a little too nicely with a bow. Mark is here to tell you that Easter is for those who are afraid. And that brings me great comfort today. What are you afraid of this Easter? Let me offer two possibilities that might, might connect with where you are today. Perhaps some of you are afraid that it's not true. Perhaps you're afraid that it's not true. After all, we know that dead people don't come back to life. Dead people don't rise. And maybe if you're honest, you have this nagging fear that it's not real. And if it's not real, 
And what does that mean for life and for death and for meaning and for everything in, in between? Maybe you're afraid to even really consider that possibility. Friends, let me say it is okay to ask this question. It really is. One of my favorite things I get to do as a pastor in this church is membership interviews. Most of you are like, what? That sounds kind of boring. But I love membership interviews because I get to sit down with you and I hear your stories of faith. And every year there seems to be kind of a common theme between all the stories I hear over these, over these days and weeks of interviews. And if there was a common theme in this round of membership interviews that I heard from several of you, it was this. That you've spent time around churches where it was not okay to ask questions. It was not okay. When you dared to raise difficult questions, you were essentially told to shut up and just believe, right? Just believe. But just believe doesn't work for very long, does it? It becomes untenable for your faith to not be able to ask questions, and so you go looking for a different community. Paul Tillich, who's the German-American philosopher, once said, Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is one element of faith. Did you hear that? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is one element of faith. And so I hope for these new members and for everyone that you find in this church a hospitable place for your questions. Mostly because you find Jesus to be hospitable and gentle with your questions. And because I truly do believe that the density, the solidity of the Christian faith can sustain the weight of your questions. So what do you do if you're afraid that Easter is not true? Well, you consider the evidence from the text. Where you will say, where you will see, hopefully, that the Christian faith is faith, but it is a plausible faith. It's a plausible faith. That is, when you take all the evidence together, the most plausible explanation is that Christ really rose from the dead. Let's look at some of these evidences. First, consider the empty tomb. The scriptures are very clear that Christ really did die. He did not just pass out. He did not go and slip into a coma. In fact, in Mark 15, 45, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, summons the centurion to certify that Jesus is truly dead. And then Jesus is buried in a grave that is owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And the tomb is sealed with a large stone, and his body lie there all Saturday. It was the Jewish Sabbath. It was unlawful even to tend to a dead body on the Sabbath. And so, at the very first opportunity, at sunrise, the day after the Sabbath, the women come to the tomb that they might properly anoint his body with perfume and spices. Brothers and sisters, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. The easiest way to refute the story that Christ rose from the dead was to produce a body. And it was definitely in the, in the interest of the Jewish leaders and of Rome to produce a body or an ossuary full of bones, but to this day, none has been produced because the tomb really was empty. Secondly, consider the eyewitness accounts. First, the fact that there are eyewitnesses that could be consulted and fact-checked. This is really cool. Mark, who almost never gives specific names throughout his entire gospel, three times from Mark 15.40 to Mark 16.1, about nine verses or so, He mentions Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome three times. 
He places these women at the cross, at the burial, and at the empty tomb, as if to say, these women are the witnesses. They are still alive. If you don't believe me, go ask them. The New Testament has 12 appearances of the risen Jesus. One of those to more than 500 people at one time who saw Jesus alive in the flesh. And then these written accounts from these eyewitnesses, the Gospels we have of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have the feel of real eyewitness accounts. They're not stylized. They're not polished. Furthermore, if you were fabricating a resurrection story, this is not the way you would do it. You wouldn't have women as the first witnesses at the tomb. In that day, women were not seen as credible witnesses, unable even to testify in court. And you certainly wouldn't have the women running away and hiding in fear. That's not how you write it if you're fabricating it. So why does Mark write it this way? Because that's how it really happened. In fact, this is actually one of the key factors in C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. C.S. Lewis had studied mythology his entire life. He was a world expert on mythology, and he concluded that the Gospels were no mythology. They're not written like mythology. Third of all, consider the expectations of the people of that day. You might think, well, maybe they just wanted resurrection to be true, and so they made it up. But friends, no one, absolutely no one, was expecting resurrection. Don't you find it really curious that even though Jesus told his disciples several times that he would die and then three days later rise again, that not even one disciple is at the tomb on Sunday just in case? None of them. You would think one of them would have said, hey, Pete, um, hey, it's the third day. Why don't we go over to the tomb just to see if he was telling the truth? What can it hurt? But they're not there. The only people at the tomb are the women, and the only thing they are expecting to find there is a dead body. What are they talking about on the way to the tomb? Who's going to roll away the huge stone so we can tend to his body? They're not even thinking about resurrection. This is because the Jewish worldview expected a resurrection of everyone at the end of time, but not of one man in the middle of time, nowhere on the radar. And the Greek worldview was all about escaping the body, not being raised to live in a resurrected body. See, absolutely no one was expecting resurrection. And the only way that Jews and Greeks start to believe in a risen Christ is because it really happened. It's the only way. Fourth, consider the explosive growth of the church. The explosive growth of the church. How in the world... Do we go from, a, from, a, from this text, from a few women running away and hiding in fear to a religion that has believers on every continent? How do you explain the transformation of the disciples from betrayers and deniers and cowards to, to bold witnesses of the gospel who are willing to die for their faith? And most of them actually do. How do you explain how a small group of uneducated men from a small corner of Palestine with no finances, no social status, no government power, and against much persecution, they managed to overtake the Mediterranean world with the gospel of Jesus in just a few hundred years? The only explanation is they had seen the risen Jesus. 
and received a spirit-empowered commission to go and tell the whole world. Now, friends, can you prove without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? No, of course not. But can you have what Leslie Newbigin called proper confidence? Proper confidence that the most plausible explanation is that Jesus is alive. I believe that you can. If you were afraid today that it might not be true, consider these evidences again. Wrestle with these questions. Wrestle with us in community. But ultimately, friends, let your confidence not rest on your faith, but on the faithfulness of your God. That's one fear we may have today. But secondly, perhaps some of you are afraid that it is true. (laughs) You're afraid that it is true. What in the world do I mean by that? How can you be afraid that it is true? Because if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then this changes everything. And it calls you and me to an audacious hope that we might find equally as terrifying. For the second year in a row, for the second Easter in a row, an Anglican priest wrote an article right before Easter that is perfect for my sermon. So thank you, Anglican priests everywhere. <laughs> last, week, last week it was Tish Harrison Warren. This year it was Esau McCauley. Next, week, next year it'll be Danny Hyman, right? Bring it. Now this week Esau McCauley wrote a piece in the New York Times entitled The Unsettling Power of Easter. It's perfect. Listen to this. Here's an excerpt. Mark's ending points to a truth that often gets lost in the celebration. Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive. We know what to do with grief and despair. We have a place for it. We have rituals that surround it. I know how to look around at the anti-black racism, the anti-Asian racism, the struggles of families at the border and feel despair. I know what it's like to watch the body count rise after a mass shooting, only to have the country collectively shrug because we are too addicted to our guns and to our violence. I put it all in the tomb that contains my dead hopes and dreams for what the church and the country should be. I am left with only tears. Hope is much harder to come by. Hope is much harder to come by. Do you feel that? I do. I know what to expect in a world of death. What do I expect in a world where Jesus has conquered death? Brothers and sisters, if Easter really is true, then the empty tomb is ground zero for the birth of new creation. That means a new power has been unleashed upon the world that has transformed the lives of millions of people. A new way of of being human is now possible. A new hope which animates our lives that God is indeed making all things new. A new world has been inaugurated. Make no mistake, Easter is not about a private spiritual experience. It's not. Can you imagine Mary Magdalene telling people that Jesus is alive and people responding, well, that's nice for you. That's your private religious preference. No. Jesus was not raised as a spirit, he was raised as a body, and therefore he makes a a claim on all creation. And he makes a claim on you. If Easter is real, you cannot live as if it didn't happen. 
It will reorient your entire life. It calls you to a living hope. And that can be terrifying to get your hopes up that high. Easter dares you to believe in things that sound too good to be true. It dares you to believe that your sins do not have the final word. Did you hear possibly the most gracious words in our text tonight? In verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. And Peter. Why Peter? Because Peter had messed up the most. Peter, who boldly boasted, even if all the other disciples fail you, Jesus, I will not. And yet there he is, outside the Sanhedrin, cursing and denying that he even knows Jesus. Peter is probably at home right now, sulking, resolved that this sin is the final word in his life. This failure is his lasting legacy. But the angel says, go tell the disciples, and especially Peter, that I'm alive, and I can't wait to see you in Galilee. Easter dares you to believe that your sins do not have the final word. The gospel is nothing if not the grace of God in Christ overcoming human failure. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sins. But if Christ is raised, then you are in Christ. And in Christ, the grace of God gets the final word. Easter dares you to believe that this is not the only body that you will have. If this body is the only one you get, if this world is the only one you get, then by all means, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have as much fun as you can because you only live once. And this, and this pesky suffering that keeps interrupting our fun, that suffering is meaningless. But friends, if there is a world to come, if there is a body to come, then whatever you lose here for the sake of the gospel, you will gain a hundredfold at the resurrection. Johnny Erickson Tata, who many of you know, became a a quadriplegic at the age of 17 through a terrible accident. Johnny Erickson Tata finds great comfort that this is not the only body she will ever have. She writes, I, with shriveled, bent fingers, with atrophied muscles, with gnarled knees, with no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who has who is spinal cord injured like me? Easter turns dead ends into new beginnings. Everything in this passage is about new beginnings. It's early in the day, it's the first day of the week. Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. Galilee is where this all began, and now it is the place of a new beginning. Friends, so it is for you in Christ. You not only get a new heart and a mind, you get a new body, a new creation. Lastly, Easter dares you to believe in the power of God to change your life. The power of God to change your life. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans 8 that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now working in you. Do you ever find things in your life that only make sense because the resurrection is true? Of course we do. 
when you feel less slighted when someone criticizes you, when you derive less and less of your identity from being successful at work, when you think it's a good idea to give away a significant amount of your money, when you think it's a good idea to open up your homes to someone in need, when you find yourself using your power to promote others instead of yourself, friends, that is the resurrection power of Christ at work in you. Are these things too good to be true? Well, if Christ is not risen, then it's a pipe dream. But if he is alive, then this is the living hope that you can have at the very center of your life. And friends, I'm here to tell you this hope will not let you down. It will not disappoint you. It'll actually be better than you can possibly imagine. Scripture says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So what do we do? What do we do on this Easter Sunday? First of all, repent and believe the gospel. If you are outside of Christ, then you are outside of this hope that I've been speaking about. But if you repent... If you turn from your sins, if you turn away from all other hopes and you put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you, then this hope will be yours. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Repent and believe. But secondly, go and tell. Go and tell. The first Easter in Mark's gospel ends with a call to go and tell that Christ is risen. These fearful women do eventually go and tell or else you and I wouldn't be standing here. So therefore, it is incumbent upon us to do the same. Go and tell the good news. Go tell them that their sins do not have the final word. Go tell them that this body is not the only one they will have. Go tell them that this power of God can transform your life. Esau Macaulay concludes his article with this great line. Christians, at their best, are the fools who dare believe in God's power to call dead things to life. We are the fools who dare believe in God's power to call dead things to life. So brothers and sisters, I ask you on this Easter Sunday, let's be fools for the sake of Christ. Let us go and tell that Christ is alive. Amen. Let me pray for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in our fears today and you would give us a living hope that changes everything. Lord, thank you that those who put their hope in you will not be put to shame. So, Lord, we put our hope in a risen Christ and our hope that you are making all things new, even in us. Lord, if this is true, help us to go and tell the whole world. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.